0: Hey, fellow foodies, Dr. Cassandra Quave here, and you are listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I am loving these early days of spring here in Atlanta, but at the same time, I'm also counting down the days until June. I'm going to be leading an international field expedition with eight collaborating scientists from the U.S., Italy, Spain, the U.K., and Kosovo in the Haas region of Albania and Kosovo in just one more month. In addition to documenting the trade and use of wild medicinal plants found in these mountains, we're also going to be training local students in field research techniques. But we need your help. We are crowdfunding this expedition using the Emory University Momentum platform. Our goal is to raise $10,000 to support the expedition expenses and to train local scientists. We're only 1% there and meeting our goal, so I really need your help. And whether you can give $10 or $100, every bit goes a really long way, and all of the funds go directly to supporting the expedition. Nothing is lost to crowdfunding platform fees because this is done directly through my university's um, giving um, page mechanism. And as an added bonus, your donation is tax deductible in the U.S. So head over to momentum.emory.edu Quave. I'll also add the web link to the show notes. And you can also find the web link at Foodie Pharmacology on our social media pages. So again, it's momentum.emory.edu slash Quave. All right. We have a super special episode for you today. We're getting back to one of my favorite topics, the ethnobotany of home gardens. Medicinal plants are the primary source of medicine in many parts of the world, and the cultivation and sharing of plant medicines in communities is incredibly important to supporting local community health. Our guest today is Amanda Teal, and she'll be sharing some insights from her dissertation research on medicinal plants and home gardens of the Quechimaya people of Guatemala. We'll be discussing her recent paper just published in the journal Economic Botany on this very topic. Before we get started, let me tell you a bit more about Amanda. She's currently working towards her Ph.D. in anthropology at Washington State University under the mentorship of Dr. Marcia Quinlan. Her interests focus on medical ethnobiology in Latin America with present work in Maya communities. She uses ethnographic methods to study people's interrelationships with the environment in order to revitalize cultural practices and identities and inform theories of culture and its change. Her research approach emphasizes collaboration with indigenous peoples and local communities in support of their self-determination. She's been involved in research projects in Mexico, Guatemala, and the U.S. Amanda's background is in herbal medicine, and when she's not conducting ethnobotanical research, she also enjoys foraging for wild plants and other active pursuits in nature. Um, That's something that clearly resonates with my heart and something I love to do as well. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Amanda. It's really great to see you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah. So why don't we start with just some of the basics? Why don't you situate us in this amazing field research site where you're doing work with the Kichimaya people in Guatemala?
1: Sure. So the village I've been working in is called Santa Lucia, Lachua, Santa Lucia for short. And it's a village of about 700 people um, in. northwestern Guatemala, so in the Department of Altavera Paz. So it's really hot. It's a lowland area, so it's tropical, um, you know, rainy and warm uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful area, lots of um, native bromeliads and orchids and palms, um, and then people there cultivate maize or milpa um, horticulture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So tell us a little bit about the process of acquiring food and of acquiring medicines. We've talked about, you know, traditional agricultural systems in many different parts of the world. But what is it like there on a day-to-day basis? Like, what are the typical household activities like?
1: Yeah, so um, people live in homes on what they call lots, lotes, um, which we would call home gardens, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a parcel of land with trees, sometimes, um, bushes, sometimes, and whatever plants people have either cultivated or that have just naturally popped up. You know, there's a lot of little wild chili plants that birds seed into the gardens, um, and so they just grow naturally. Um, and so people live in... in um, little compounds like this and with either thatch home roofs or sometimes corrugated metal roofs um, Mm -hmm. sometimes um, plank homes sometimes cement block homes and then they cultivate um, their crops for subsistence and for sale elsewhere. So in that picture you just saw um, there was corn in the foreground, which is actually somewhat unusual. Um, this is a home on the outskirts of the town and so it's closer to the more agricultural areas. But most homes are all grouped in the center of town and then people walk to their their milpa or their cornfield okay. outside of town.
0: Nice. It's kind of like that in, in Italy, where I've done all the field work, because you have everyone is kind of in the center, and then, yeah, you go out into the fields in the day. And so who's doing what types of labor? Because I think that also impacts, really, the relationships that people have with their environment, and also who holds the knowledge for different types of, of plant uses?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, predominantly men are working in the agricultural fields, um, growing corn and pineapples and what have you. Um, and then women are centered around the homes. And so it doesn't mean that men won't also tend the home gardens. They absolutely will. But um, predominantly, the time spent in and around the home is done by women. And that coincides you know, with their other um daily tasks like food preparation. So easier to be at home doing that and and watching over the children and uh, whatnot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. So let's, let's talk about medicine and, you know, the access to medicine, whether it is traditional medicine or if it's bio, you know, Western biomedicine, what does healthcare look like in a community like this?
1: Yeah. So people are really relying on home remedies. Um, Like you mentioned earlier, the majority of the world Mm -hmm. is using plant medicine. So like 80 percent of the world relies on plant medicine um, for their primary health care. And that's definitely true in this area. Um, Home remedies, whether they're from medicinal plants that people are growing or even if they're store bought medicines, um, you know, people are administering them at home and they're not going to health care practitioners very often. So in this particular village, this is especially the case um, because there's only one very minimally staffed health center. Um, mm-hmm. There's a nurse there maybe twice a month and they come in to give immunizations and see people that really need it, um, but only very sporadically. And then a hospital um, is the next closest healthcare facility, which is um, it's a good 45 minute drive away and no one has cars. So you have to get on. (laughs) So you're really, you know, taking care of yourself um, and your family and your friends um, in this, in this particular setting.
0: Yeah. Well, and so who, who are the caregivers? I know in some cultures, you know, it's not uncommon to find the elder women, the head of household that like the eldest grandmother um, will treat, their children and grandchildren. But in other communities, instead, there are specialist healers that people go to. And so kind of what's that look like um, in, yeah, so in this community?
1: In this community, um, there are some healers. There are three um, curanderos, which are like mm-hmm. the folk healers who often use herbs, but sometimes other methods of healing too. Um, there's Um, There used to be midwives, um, but there aren't any more. It's kind of an issue across Guatemala where midwifery practice is really being subsumed by biomedicine for better and worse. Um, You know, there's a lot of pros and cons to each each avenue, but um, Mm -hmm. there are no longer midwives in this particular area. So um, by and large, it's um, everyone, lay people treating their families. Um, Sometimes Mm -hmm. this is the women, um, sometimes men. It kind of depends on the family context and who seems to have more, more knowledge of these traditions. But it seems that everyone has some, um, at least some knowledge of how to care for themselves and their families um, with plants.
0: Yeah, cool. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the methods that go into this kind of research study. And maybe, maybe you can share with the listeners, you know, how do you glean information on knowledge of plants and, you know, which plants are grown in home gardens versus which ones are being wild harvested and who's using plants in certain ways. What are some of the research methods that you use to get that information?
1: Yeah, great. Well, most anthropological work starts with what we call participant observation. So I'm there, I'm participating in activities and I'm also observing and asking questions and um, going along with the the pace of life there. So, um, you know, I'm hanging out and peeling um, corn kernels off the cobs as they've come in from harvest and um, going to plant pineapples with family members. Um, and and basically just asking questions the whole time. So um, that's where participant observation kind of makes way into informal interviewing. Uh, but then there are more formal interviews, too. So the way that I was doing research about home gardens was I was visiting folks in their homes um, asking you know for permission and asking if they'd be interested in talking with me about about the plants they have growing in their gardens. Um, and then, and then if they were interested and willing and had time, then we would usually walk through their gardens. Um, so this would be called like a plant walk tour. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'd just point to plants or wait for them. If they were especially interested in the topic, they would often just you know start pointing to plants and say, "Oh, do you know about this one? This is what its name is. This is how we use it." And if they didn't just readily offer that information, I would probe a little bit, you know. So like, "Oh, I see this plant here. It's so pretty. It has purple flowers. What do you you know What do you call it?" And uh, mm-hmm. and would ask for it in different languages because in this village, um, I was communicating in Spanish, but the um, first language is Kekchi which is a Maya language, mm-hmm. and so I would ask for the Kekchi name as well, or any other names that they knew for plants, um, and then additional information about each plant. So, and go through methodologically um, um, to ask about, you know, how you use something, um, what the amount you, you know, would need mm-hmm. to make tea or whatever the preparation was for for each one. So, so those were the main methods, um, and then also some follow-up interviews just to ask for clarification and additional information where it wasn't obvious to begin with.
0: That's great. Well, and, you know, one other thing I wanted to dive into, because I know you're really passionate about this too, is is research ethics. You know, can you tell us, like, what is it what does it mean to conduct this kind of sociocultural work under the paradigm of 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 ethics in anthropology
1: sure yeah i think that's really important to talk about um so obviously in institutions we have sort of like ethical review boards um that monitor what we do and they ask you know what are the questions you're going to ask and how are you going to get permission and that's all super important Um, and but then another step is that we have to um, discuss all of our plans and our ideas with the people we're actually working with and make sure that it's cool with them Um, because if it's not what are we doing you know yeah So um, I heard an ethics professor once say that um, ethics is about flourishing and I just love that because it makes me think one about plants but also um, just about relationships and how it's important that we all work together towards um, really flourishing relationships based on trust and respect. So um, going in with that sort of premise is important and then having conversations with the appropriate sort of governance structures that are in place locally is really important. So Um, so talking with, um, the governing council of this village is a step that I took at the very outset of my research. Mm -hmm. I went and I, you know, befriended some folks in the village and I said, this is what I'm interested in doing. Who should I talk to? And they said, oh, well, you should talk to our governing council. And so, um... So I did that and went through a process of, of really outlining the terms of the research mm-hmm. um, in a really clear way so that everyone knew what was going on and everyone um, was on board. And um, there was a little bit of negotiation, but not really much because we were really open and clear about what we wanted mm-hmm. to do. And, um, I was very explicit in saying that, you know, if, if at some point you don't like what's happening here, just tell me to leave and I'll be out of here because I don't want yeah. to step on any toes. I don't want to, you know... Um, Um, overstep any sort of boundaries or, or, you know, extend people's goodwill too far. So, Um, but people were extremely supportive and interested in this kind of work and in documenting um, traditional knowledge for the benefit of future, Mm -hmm. current and future generations. And so it was really interesting to them and and they really readily agreed. Um, So then another step beyond that is to go for each interview, you have to ask for um, free prior and informed consent. So each person that I wanted to talk to, I'd say, you know, This is what I'd like to do, what I'd like to ask you about, what I'd like to do with the information. Are you okay with that? And if they said no, which happened once or twice, um, I would say, okay, great. I wish you well. See you later um, and move on to the next person. And but by and large, everyone wants to talk about um, their lives and their plant knowledge. So it was pretty easy to, to stimulate these conversations.
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah, I think this is so important, especially, you know, there are a lot of students that listen to this podcast. And I think you know, having that appreciation for ethics at the outset of, of, and again, the the focus on clarity um, is so important um, to building trust with communities.
1: Right for all the students out there and anyone really interested in doing research with indigenous or local communities, I would suggest looking at the codes of ethics that are you know relevant to the site that you're working in. So there's the International Society of Ethnobiology that has a great code of ethics, and then the Latin American Society of Ethnobiology also has one, um, which is similar um, but also particular to Latin America. So just check out what's you know relevant to wherever you're working or want to work
0: and and proceed from there. It's awesome. All right. Well, let's, let's get into the plants because, you know, that's what gets me really excited and I'm sure it does some of the audience. And, you know, maybe we can start with some of the exciting plants that, that you noted that were growing in these gardens. Were, were there, were there a mix of, of edible and medicinal plants? Were there any cases where plants could serve as food and medicine? And, And what did that look like?
1: Absolutely. So, a lot of the plants that are that people are growing in their gardens have multiple uses. So, food, medicine, um, shelter, or even like um, fences and denoting you know boundaries between Mm -hmm. different um, homes, Um, and ornamental uses. There are lots of beautiful flowers. Um, So, there's all sorts of different uses. Avocado was like a really common uh, plant there. And of course, people eat the avocados, but then they also make medicine from different parts of the avocado. The same is true for um, lots of different fruit trees mangoes, oranges, limes. Um,
0: yeah. Interesting. So, 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 how do you make medicine out of avocados? I just had avocado last night yeah. with, with my dinner. I love avocados. <laughs> yeah, like, I what, what parts are they using? What well, are they using it's, it for? Not the
1: fruit. Um, you would either be using the leaves or mm-hmm. the bark or the pit. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, for various, various uses, um, um, oftentimes like stomach upset, diarrhea, ulcers, mm-hmm. sometimes also skin problems. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one pattern that I noticed was that a lot of the fruit trees, um, their leaves are considered to be cooling if you make a tea from them. And so mm-hmm. anything related to fevers or, um, or overheat um, could be helped with, with a lot of those fruit leaves, fruit tree leaves.
0: Yeah. That's great. And so we have, so you have lots of fruit trees, and they're eating the fruits, they're using other parts of the tree as different medicines, or even in construction. What about herbaceous plants? Were, were there any kind of, you know, more of like herbs, seasonal herbs that, that are, or are there, are they just Around all season in the tropics? Like, what does that look like? Right. So, a lot
1: of them are. Um, they might go through different periods of, you know, expansion um, based on whatever rainy or dry season it is. Um, lemongrass was one particular herb that was commonly used. Um, yeah, here's one of my dear friends um, showing the lemongrass and explaining how it's used. What's really interesting um, about this. Um, plant too is that he's showing me this lemongrass plant, but it's actually growing in his neighbor's garden, not in his own. But um, <laughs> it's it's just common um, practice to you know be so friendly with neighbors that you know like walking into the neighbor's garden and talking about their plants is like totally fine. That's um, great. <laughs> yeah. So this particular plant, um, he was telling me that. Uh, this lemongrass is used in, for coughs and for fevers. Um, and I saw that actually in action a few weeks later when um, when this particular um, villager's wife had a fever and a cough and a sore throat. Mm. and so I saw the lemongrass, you know steeping in her pot in her kitchen. so
0: oh nice pretty cool. Yeah. I love lemongrass. It's one of my favorite herbs. I've eat, I've, I've been given it too for stomach upset before just mm-hmm. having it laid on my, my chest to inhale like the aromatherapy. So like Ooh. there have been, yeah, I don't know if they do that as well, just smelling it, not even drinking it, but it, it is delicious in really teas delicious. and soups. Yeah. 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 Another
1: yeah. herb that they commonly use is rue, um, which mm-hmm. is another aromatic plant. It doesn't smell quite as pleasantly citrusy as lemongrass does, but I still yeah. really like it. It's very, um, pungent smelling. And, um, this is often used for kids, um, and used to bathe kids, especially when they have, um, symptoms of what they call ojo or evil eye.
0: Interesting. Is yeah. it, is it Ruta graviolens or do you remember the species? It's
1: Ruta chalapensis.
0: So it's chalapensis. Species. Yeah that area
1: yeah Mm -hmm. so here's
0: something that's going to blow your mind they do the same thing in the islands off the coast of sicily
1: oh i believe it it's so like (laughs) rue for (laughs) that particular treatment is very common cross yeah it's pretty fast. Yeah, it's
0: interesting, like evil eye has this interesting spread across the Mediterranean and into Latin America and in, 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 in Italy it's Malocchio or you mm-hmm. know, evil eye and in Maldioho. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how you can have these traditions that are spread so far across the globe with it different is. names, but often a lot of similar um similar remedies. Right. Kinda, well, yeah.
1: Stay tuned. I'm writing a paper about malojo and its treatments in this particular. Oh, case. So that was very nice. Oh,
0: yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and, and rue just for the for the pharmacology buffs in the audience, you know, rue is an interesting plant as well because it's it's in the citrus family, right? But it also contains these sorolins, um, which can cause um, uh, DNA like. Uh, photo cross-linking basically. And there've also, I've, I've seen before where teas of rue are taken in certain ritual contexts, but can also be a bit toxic and you get some like, you know, some phototoxicity especially. Um, but yeah, a really interesting, very powerful medicinal plant often associated with like spiritual ailments, and, like witchcraft, yeah. even in some, in some cultures. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can speak to it, it.
1: Um, you know, it's sort of slightly toxic effects because I was um, making a tea from I, I'm gr- grow up a uh, plant of it on my porch mm-hmm. here, even in Washington state. You know, I like oh, to bring cool. home whatever I didn't bring this particular plant home, but I like to bring home the knowledge and, you know, infuse mm-hmm. that into my life here. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll try this Rue tea. And, oh, it really <laughs> upset my stomach and it started making me sweat and start to feel numb in my hands. I was like, okay, <laughs> just after a half a cup of tea. I think this is not the tea for me.
0: <laughs> it's very powerful. I do not recommend taking teas of Rue. <laughs> no, like, yeah.
1: yeah, but that's part yeah. of the beauty too, you know, used appropriately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very cool. So you've got rue, you've got lemongrass, you have fruit trees. Um, what about mints? Are are they using any 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 members of the Lamiaceae family, kind of in in teas or? Um,
1: only basil, as far as I can remember. Um, mm-hmm. There might have been a spearmint in one person's garden, but I was surprised actually not to find more because um, mints are often very common cross culturally. Yeah, yeah but, yeah, but so they were using um, basil as I think a stomach ache remedy, um, mm-hmm. and then also just as a condiment in food. That's um, great, and then and then spearmint as well.
0: Yeah, and what about chili peppers? Because you were mentioning how kind of chilies pop up in the wild. Are they also using those in some context medicinally? Or, um, you know, so
1: um, the leaves they're using medicinally because they consider them to be cooling. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't know about the fruits. I never heard anyone mention that. And actually even the fruits, um, some people eat them, but it's not as common to eat spicy food in this part of the world oh, as I thought originally going there. Um, so I can, I really like spicy food and, and every day at, at meals, I would say, Oh, where's the, where's the chili? Can I have a little extra chili for my <laughs> tortilla? <laughs> <and bean place?" laughs> yeah. So um, that's great. Not as common as I would have thought. Yeah.
0: Well, one of the things I really liked about your paper was this exploration of kind of communal resource sharing as a, as a means of, of reinforcing health security. And in addition to like growing, you know, cultivation of herbs, not all people cultivate their medicinal plants. This is important to note, like there are many examples of other cultures where People, they primarily wildcraft their medicinal plants and then store them dry at home. So it's not in every culture that you grow your medicinal plants, but it's very common here that they're growing these plants. Some are used as food, some as medicine, but there's also this idea of reciprocity and of sharing and helping. So what can you tell us about that? Like how that works within the community?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Um, so, Variation in, um, in cultural knowledge, like in cultural knowledge about plants, um, is actually really extensive, especially, uh, I noticed, in this village. Um, and that could be for a lot of different reasons, um, but um, one could be that people have lived in this area for only about 40 years because they were mm. they left from other parts of Guatemala to this area back when there was a really intense state conflict um, and so they were looking for for land, but they were also looking for safety. Um, and so, you know, um, 1980 was when this village was founded. So people haven't been wow. living there all that long. And so they're bringing knowledge from other parts of the country, most likely. And then also, you know, new practices are always intermixing. Um, so there's a lot of sort of turnover of knowledge or, or um, contribution to knowledge, which can make it very variable. Um, And then another aspect of that is that since there were people coming from different parts of Guatemala, while it is a predominantly Kekchi Maya village, there are also um, Ladino, which are like a mestizo or mixed um, ethnicity Mm -hmm. group. And there are other Maya groups, too, Pocomchi, Kakchiquel, and Mam. And so there's like this confluence of of different factors that could be contributing to variation. Um, And... One of the things that all that variation in knowledge and practice of cultivating medicinal plants affords is that some people know some things or have certain plant resources and others don't and what's beautiful in this area is that there's a lot of sharing and so um like for example the lemongrass that uh, my Mm -hmm. friend was you know he's showing me his friend's plant and later his wife is using it right and so Mm -hmm. um there's really a, a generosity of spirit in terms of sharing the resources that people have here, which is born out of necessity, but also out of just the goodwill that people have for one, of, one another. And so, and this picture here too, um, friends invited me to harvest this malanga plant and cook it up. And so, you know, they're very generous with what they have um, and, and want for people to be well. And so sharing knowledge, sharing resources is a big part of, of their traditional medicine and, and their lives here
0: that's really great yeah Yeah, there's something really that's that's there's something just really wonderful about that about the sharing of 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 plants and of knowledge and you know some of my favorite gifts that i have from from my neighborhood and just the broader community in atlanta have been plants like someone will bring me a cutting of a plant and i'm like and it's just a gift that keeps giving because then as it goes in a flower i think of that person and it just makes you know yeah, it's well, it's, and
1: too, like, you know, in our context, um, you know, everyone in the summer has a problem with like having too many zucchinis, right? So like you don't mm-hmm. want everyone growing zucchinis uh, or you might even think like maybe I won't grow zucchinis this year because like I know my neighbor has them and everyone mm-hmm. always has extras. So I'm sure I'll get some, you know, maybe I'll grow something else that I can gift them in return. And it's kind of this idea that seems to be um, in practice in this village in Guatemala where, you know, people are, are sharing um, and they can really be interdependent that way. In in the resources they have and in the, the knowledge that they have of, of those resources.
0: Well, it's such a it's such a more efficient use of resources and of land um, when you use it in that way. This kind of really, yeah reciprocal exchange right. and, it, and it builds
1: relationships, which is the, a really beautiful part of it.
0: It's great. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you as an anthropologist, you know, what are some of the big takeaways that because you, you're documenting plants, plant, plant uses, plant knowledge, but you're also taking a broader look at the cultural context of, of, of this knowledge. So what are some of the big takeaways that you have gleaned from this work from kind of the more anthropological perspective?
1: Sure. Um, I would say that people, there's this sort of tension between practicing your traditions and, inviting in new elements of like modern culture, even though all people living are modern <laughs> people. Um, I hate that phrase, but I, I think it illustrates sort of like the point about, you know, like the Western influence on cultural mm-hmm. traditions. And so people in this village, um, on the one hand, they really think that they have a lot of valuable cultural traditions, which they do, clearly. Um but then they also are curious about, you know, influences from the outside. And of course that's natural. We're all curious. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but I guess what, um, what is sort of hard for me, I guess, is that, um, I want to really affirm their cultural traditions and not influence too much their, their, um, change towards, you know, things that aren't, naturally part of their traditions and so i they'd ask me often when i was talking we were talking about plants you know oh well what plants do you have and and so i might mention some but i was trying to be careful not to say like oh i have this and this and i use it for this and that because i not that i don't want to share my experience i do but i don't necessarily want people to think oh i should be using plants that way too so there's this delicate balance between um, like just really supporting what's already happening locally and then also having some sort of um, interaction with, you know, connection to out- outside forces. Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: such a, that's such a great point because I mean, there have been many times where I will often ask you know people that I'm working with in, in communities about where they learned about this practice or that practice Mm -hmm. and I can tell you there have been a number of times where they've gone over to a (laughs) bookcase here I I learned about it by reading this herbalism book and like you know and explain I was like oh because there's this preconception that you know it has to be you know from their grandmother or the healer in the village Mm -hmm. that taught them or it's not always it's not always right actually I have a funny
1: story about that with the moringa tree if you're familiar with it um Mm -hmm. There were a handful of them growing throughout the village, and so in my plant garden tours, I was asking about moringa, and um, folks there kept saying, "Oh, well, it's it's used for 300 illnesses." And I was like, "Okay, like what?" (laughs) And you know, they list them like big things like diabetes and cancer, and um, but the way they talked about it was really interesting. It was very different than the way they talked about other plants, and. Mm -hmm they all seem to say the same thing. I heard it's for 300 illnesses three times, at least three times while (laughs) it was there. And I was like, someone, they're getting this information from someone, from somewhere that's like, um, yeah. you know, entering from outside. And sure enough, when I asked more about it, um, it was some, some sort of um, conservation and like restoration project that was trying to spread a, a plant, you know, to try and reforest areas or whatever. Um,
0: put but, moringa everywhere. Yep.
1: <laughs> but also to like support traditional medicine, even though it's not a tradition in this area, it's a tradition in Asia. Um, so, so yeah, that was-
0: that's an odd plant to like spread traditional medicine. <laughs> I
1: was like, why can't we spread the, the plants that are already growing here and that people have traditions so they don't have to, I mean, not that we don't want to learn new things, but, you know, I could tell that they hadn't quite practiced any of that medicine yet. You know, it's for 300 illnesses, but I don't, but the other thing they said was, but I don't know how to use it. And it's like, okay, well, you know, yeah, that makes sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to like the dynamic nature of of the history of, you know, medicinal plants. And I, I often get this question, you know, from people where they'll say, well, how did people figure out how to use these medicines? Mm -hmm. Or especially when there's combinations, like how did they figure out to put this and this together? And it's, it's complicated. It's like, it's, but there's, there's this building of empirical evidence over time and then sharing of knowledge. And then one person marries into another village or someone travels through a village or, Today it could be that they le- they heard about it on the radio or on TV right. or on TikTok. I mean, it's like the 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 mechanisms of knowledge exchange are just evolving so quickly. Um, But at the same time, there's so much knowledge erosion with language loss. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. that there there are two languages spoken in this village. Mm -hmm. Have you noted in the region, especially since they've already been part of a diaspora that was displaced by conflict in other parts of the country, have you seen language erosion um, in their indigenous language Um, or has that really stayed intact?
1: So what's neat about this particular place is that it has stayed intact somewhat. Um, so
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, there is a large sense of cultural pride around the Kekchi language and around being Maya in general, which mm-hmm. is very different than some other parts of the Maya area. Um, so in this village, people would say, um, Somos Maya. Um, we are Maya. And, you know, like, like, and they'd say it in a way that was like pride. It's, taller yeah. and, and, and feel really proud of that, which was really beautiful to see. Um, and so, and even people who are, um, pokomchi or Mam or Kekchikel and have moved to this area, they're actually learning Kekchi because it's the sort of de facto language, you know, okay. so, so Kekchi is doing well in this particular area. Um, but that's not the case for a lot of other languages mm-hmm. or maybe necessarily for Kekchi in another, another site, you know, um. And so there's definitely still Spanish language dominance in this whole area. Um, but even in schools, kids are still learning Kekchi and some of their textbooks have um, are in Kekchi. And so mm-hmm. that's really, really neat for for their language continuity.
0: That's great. Yeah, it's great that I have it continued in schools. Well, when it comes to knowledge return and kind of, you know, once you have this knowledge documented, what was the desire of the community? Like, did they have a desire to recapture this knowledge in some format or use it in some way um, for the purposes of serving the community?
1: Absolutely. So um, yes, at, at the outset, one of the main um, things I kept hearing from people was, oh yeah, my, my grandmother practiced this or, you know, we used to know this and now we're losing it. So we want to keep this knowledge intact. Do um, Doing that is um, one of the things that ethnobotanists can really help support, mm-hmm. you know, is to like, you know, we're trained in like how to document information and um, how to analyze it. And like we can fill that sort of gap where um, maybe there's not the, the know-how of how to do that in a community, but they have the know-how of the plants. And so working together, there can be this really beautiful mutualism, um, develop where people can work together, um, and, and document knowledge where it's wanting, where they're wanting it to be documented mm-hmm. and preserve it into the future. And one of the, um, one of the aims I had in working with these folks was to return the information to them in a way that was locally acceptable and, and appropriate. And that's a really actually hard thing to do. Um, and it's yeah. not something that is, <laughs> um, emphasized enough in academia and in, um, you know, research generally. So I really made a point. Um, part of the reason I went back, um, So I went in 2016 and I went in 2018 and part of the reason I went back in 2018 aside from just loving the people I met and wanting to see them again was to bring back information so at that point I had written a thesis about medicinal plants Um, I translated it into Spanish I brought it back I'm not sure that anyone read it but at least it's there Um, (laughs) and then what I did was I also took um, little bits of the information extracted it into a smaller um, sort of like brochure size um, pamphlet that people could use and I, it was really telling, actually, you know, I felt great about doing this. And I felt like, okay, at least it's something, you know, that's being returned to them. So they have um, not only the information written down, but also like for anyone in the future that wants to to see it, either to use it or just to feel affirmed that their knowledge matters. Yeah. You know? That felt really good to me. But then I get there. And, and, and of course, people were like, oh, thank you. This is great. But also I had one person say, well, actually he didn't say anything. Um, I handed him the the info and explained what it was and he hands it to his granddaughter, um, and says, here you go, you can have it. And, and I was trying to figure out what's going on. Does he not care or what? And, um, through a process of conversation, I realized that he, um, doesn't read or write.
0: And so he yeah.
1: was useless to him, but he said, oh, well, she can, she can read it to me. Um, and, and tell me what's in there. So, so that was kind of a humbling moment where I was like, oh no, like. <laughs> yeah. You want to make everyone, it like where it works.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. It's We're like, how do you, them. well, do they you have know. access to power or electricity for video or anything there or?
1: So most folks have electricity, but not all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, TVs are not very common. Um, so yeah. So that's the balance from... is like,
0: how do you find yeah. the right.
1: Right common. So, yeah, I think that there's the, the potential for, um, yeah, for video. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's all like a process of figuring out what works in a particular situation and context and, and working. Well. I
0: think, I think you're absolutely right, though, with this. I mean, it's not emphasized enough in academia and it needs to be. I mean, I think doing the the effort of taking A scientific work like a research paper but making that into a format that's accessible in the local language that's not in like science speak but like in accessible language that's that's quite an endeavor and it's it is really important um i wish that that could be counted as you know towards towards dissertations as like a body of the work and hopefully it will be for yours because Mm -hmm. it is it is an important contribution and and should be something that all of us are doing um, who work with indigenous groups and, and with local communities. Absolutely. Um, it's yeah.
1: really their knowledge, it's for them. They, they are the ones who you know want to continue using it and perpetuate the knowledge and any effort yeah. we can to support that, that um, direction is really a, a good one.
0: That's great. All right, so as we're wrapping up, I have to ask you, this is a question I like to ask all of my guests, and can you share with us one of your favorite recipes Mm-hmm. um, from this region. Like, I know you mentioned chili peppers, which weren't, aren't quite, uh, typical to the area, but like, what, right. what was your favorite, what was your favorite type of meal there? And, and do you have any advice? Like, can it be made with the ingredients that are accessible to us here? Oh yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So absolutely. I, I mean, this is going to sound silly, but, um, one of my favorite meals was refried beans. <laughs> 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 I love beans. And, like, it's just so, simple, but so delicious and just so sustaining. And, and, uh you know, it's like, all local ingredients and um, yeah, just super tasty. But then I would also say, um, so there were there were malanga um, plants which um, we harvested and made into like three different types of preparations, um, like kind of like mash. It's sort of it's like a starchy. Um, I
0: was about um, to ask, like, what is malanga? Because yeah. like I I don't think I've even ever tried it before. Yeah, so yeah. Um,
1: it's very much like a starchy potato, only a lot larger, um, and um, the. So you can prepare it like kind of like mashed potatoes and salt and water um, or with sugar. And then it's like a sweet sort of starchy mm. meal. Um, and then we also sliced it and fried it sort of like a potato chip. And that was really tasty, too. So that
0: was, nice. that was fun. If you're
1: in the tropics, you can do that. But not, not so much in the temperate climate like where I'm at right now. So I stick yeah. with fried beans now to put me in the mood <laughs> of, you know, being back in the village and thinking about all my friends there.
0: That's great. And so, and so what's, what's next on your, on your work in this region? Do you have plans for future studies?
1: Yeah. So I have actually started another project just right across the border in um, Mexico, in Southern, Southern Mexico. And Mm -hmm. it's more focused on food and traditional food and how to, um, how to really engage youth in perpetuating knowledge Mm -hmm. about traditional food. And so using a lot of participatory video and things like that. Um, but I'm also working more with medicine too and doing some studies there and hopefully continued studies in Guatemala um, in the future about, about traditional medicine and how to that, that same sort of issue of how to return information and perpetuate information and knowledge there that's really culturally appropriate, you know. Um, so so lots, lots of different um, things going on, but it's a, it's a beautiful, um, there's lots of beautiful opportunities.
0: That's great fantastic well thank you so much amanda for coming on the show this has been a lot of fun it's been my pleasure thank you so much for having me yeah you've been listening to foodie pharmacology the science podcast for the food curious recorded um for you today on restream I want to thank our producers Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for pulling this together and thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. Remember, you can catch this episode and all of our others recent episodes on our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany and you can stream this podcast um, on any of your favorite streaming platforms. Remember, do me a favor, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating. Even if you don't write anything down, just click those five stars. I'd really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.